How are we setting an environment where we are investing in our kids rather than using the monies that we have to lock them up or send them away or place them in places? I didn't like a kid sitting here for, you know, 200 days only to go to a placement to do another 200 days. So have we really done right by this kid? Have we really? Because what we've done now is we've taken a whole year, maybe year and a half of a child's life and, 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 and separated them um, from their family. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Delta Project podcast, What I Know Now. I'm here with Cole Williams. Yeah. Hey, Joe. How's it going? Good. And Stacy McGinnis. Yay. Stacy. Glad to be here. Man. So I'm a co-founder of the Delta Project along with Cole here. We've been working on this project now for a number of years. But it started as a program. Yeah. It started as the Delta Probe. And we're going to dig into that a little bit today. And... Continue to talk a bit about our origin with our first actual guest on the podcast, and we're super excited to have Stacy here. Yeah, Cole, tell us a bit about Stacy, and then Stacy can take it away. Listen, well, I don't want to say too much about Stacy because I want <laughs> Stacy to sort of lay lay the foundation for her work. But what I will say, um, Stacy, having you in this space is. I would say probably a dream come true. I think that originally this whole concept of the Delta Project and the vision for the Delta Project really came from your amazing work um, teaching or being the superintendent, excuse me, of the Juvenile Detention Center here in King County in Grand Rapids. And so your your lived experience, your work throughout the history of the juvenile justice system is why I'm really excited to be in this space with you today because I find and I know from working alongside you that there is so much information that you have learned and that you have gathered along the way. And Stacy is now retired, and so we have an opportunity to see you from a, a, a different space. But Stacy, I'd love for you just to, before we dig, take a deep dive into this work, I'd mm-hmm. love for you just to talk to us a little bit about you and how did you even arrive into the world of the juvenile justice system? So if you could just kind of tell oh, us wow. a little bit about, you know, who you are and we'll go from there. Okay. Well, I am originally from Detroit, Michigan. Okay. I'm a native of Detroit. And uh, what led me to this side of town is Grand Valley. Okay. I was a student at Grand Valley State University. Um, I got my bachelor's at Grand Valley in criminal justice. I initially started off as a business major because my mom wanted me to go, in, my, both my parents wanted me to go into business or, mm. you know, either that or become a lawyer or a doctor or something of that nurse sort, but I could not get past accounting <laughs> or my stats class. It was just not happening. Math. Yeah. So that was a difficulty for me. Well, actually, school in general has been just been difficult. It was difficult initially for me. So um, I took a criminal justice course, and oh my gosh, I loved it. I loved it. I always knew I wanted to work with young people, but I just didn't know what setting. Um, I thought I would have been a teacher. 
Um, but when I took the criminal justice course, it led me to the criminal justice field. And ironically, I was part of a sit-in at Grand Valley <laughs> for some changes. And I met the vice president of Grand Valley State University, um, the vice president, and she introduced me to Judge Janet Haynes. And I had an opportunity to come to Kent County, the courthouse at the time, and um, it was the juvenile center, I should say. And um, I got an opportunity to sit in a couple court hearings, loved it, and um, I learned a little bit more shadowing her, and I landed my first job um, once I graduated with Kent County Juvenile Court. And so um, while they're working there, I got my master's degree in social work. And um, I did 30 years. I stayed at the court for 30 years. I started in March of 1992, and I retired in March of 2022. Wow. So, so Stacy, with that wealth, can you speak a little bit about how, what roles have you played in the court system? How many... How many are you, were you just, uh, how did you go from being in the court visiting to the superintendent? Right, right. Well, I started off as a um, youth group worker at the, um, there was a, we had a program, um, a residential program, and I was a group worker there for probably about six months or so. And um, then I became a surveillance officer for a new program called the Day Treatment Night Watch Program. <laughs> and so I was a full-time surveillance officer for a couple of years. And while during surveillance, I went back to school and, and got my master's. And immediately during that time, I was able to land a job as a probation officer. So then I became a probation officer. And then I moved up later after about seven or eight years, and I became a supervisor. So I supervised surveillance officers and probation officers. Then I moved and became the uh, assistant um, superintendent, and I did that for about five years, and then I became the superintendent of detention. So, And I did my internship with the court and in the crisis intervention program. Wow. So I was a therapist for our crisis intervention program while being a probation officer. So, yeah, wow. I had quite a few positions. So what was it that really kept you going? I mean, obviously there was an initial interest in this area of work and working with young people, but it sounds like you had a really nice trajectory in your career. And what were some of the day-to-day -day lessons you learned that kept you on that path? Well, seeing changes in, in, the, in our young people, and, and it was just so, I mean, it was just such a big need. And I just kept trying to, you know, uh, I, I learned through this whole process, you can't fix everything, you know. And so it's just one day at a time and, you know, just asking myself each day, what did I do today to make life better for someone else? And so, you know, it was a day-to-day -day thing with working with our, um, the, our young people, and um, I just loved it. I, I, I can honestly say I genuinely loved my career working with young people, and it hasn't stopped. You know, even now that I'm retired, I'm still moving in that direction. 
Um, it's just coming from a different avenue right now. So yeah, maybe yeah. I'm retired from that job, but you don't really retire. No, you keep going. no, that's you right. Keep making impact. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So Stacy, the Delta Project. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the Delta program sort of manifested in the detention center? So can you speak to the reasons why there needed to be a treatment program in the detention center? Well, I'll just tell you how things worked initially. We, um, when kids got placed in placements, I would see them leave and they would be placed somewhere, you know, in another state or, you know, hundreds of miles away from their parents and they would go to placement, stay there, come back, and we expect them to be fixed, quote unquote fixed. And they go back to some of the same behavior. Yeah. Um, also, there was a, a waiting list for kids to go to placement. So we have kids just sitting in detention waiting. And I'm saying to myself, it's got to be a different way. We, why can't we use some of our beds, our space? And, and start a residential program. Okay. And so uh, we took one of the units. All of our units in detention are by letters. And we took the unit D, which was the Delta unit. Mm. And we took that unit and kind of turned it into a program. Um, and the, the whole purpose of this program was to help reintegrate kids back into the community. So they would be locally kept here, and parents could come and visit. Yeah. Uh, they could do community service projects right in their own community, you know, and we would have them come back in the facility. Um, we uh, could do some counseling for the, for the child and their parent together, um, um, as well as individually. But it's all happening right where they live. And, I, you know, I'll be the first to say that's the best way to really work at changing the young person. And so that's kind of where that started. Yeah. And uh, we got this great guy named Cole Williams who came on board. (laughs) And uh, I'm trying to remember, Cole, how we met. But I know you came in. I walked in. That's that's usually what I do. Cole walked in. I walked in. And, and he sat down and he proposed something to me, a, yeah. running some groups with our kids. And I said, come on in. Yeah. yeah. Come on in. You know, it's always, you know, that's the thing. When I, when I, as a superintendent, I really wanted to set the tone to have people come in and work with our youth, work with our young people you know, and from your background, Cole, you know, being a single parent yeah. and um, foster, being a foster parent, yeah. you know, you had uh, some great, you know, reasons and things that you wanted to do with our young people and came in. And I might not have had my story is not the same as your story. Yeah. And I knew you would be able to impact a yeah. lot of our young men. And you did just that. And so... It was great to, you know, have you come on board yeah. and uh, start working with some of our young people and their families, yeah. the parents. Yeah. yeah. So is it simply that you saw a need? You know, what was it that sparked this idea to bring things in closer to home? So that, I mean, obviously, as kids are being sent to other states, 
they're being set hundreds of miles away, that's kind of an extra layer of complexity and trauma frankly, correct for that separation. But was it just one day you woke up and had this idea or, or I'm just trying to get at really the core of what made you see it because it became something. It was kind of a combination of things. And like I said, one being the fact that we had the space there and their kids were just sitting there waiting mm. to go to somewhere else when they could be capturing, we we want to. T- I wanted to take advantage of every day that they are in the facility. You know, we started this concept of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. with the kids, um, where we wanted them to focus more on what they could change. We wanted them to um, kind of focus in and hone in on what they can change, and so. We started doing CBT as, as, as our behavior management system, um, and that was one thing we did, but the okay. other was starting this residential program. Okay. And so the need really was, you know, how can we impact this time that we have them here? You know, I didn't like a kid sitting here for, you know, 200 days only to go to a placement to do another mm-hmm. 200 days. So, I mean, have we really done right by this kid? Have we really? Because what we've done now is we've taken a whole year, maybe year and a half of a child's life and and, and, and separated them um, from their family. So it was more about how we can impact them in every minute that we have them. And so the residential program was a start, and it was a good kickoff. And um, um, I mean, I had to—I I can't say yeah. I did it by myself because I there mean, was a, a group of people yeah. that you know we sat down as a team, and we all came up and gave some input. There were probation officers, there were supervisors involved, um, the court administrator involved, and even a judge that we kind of gave some input and what we wanted to make that look like. And so, you know, as a result, we came up with the uh, Delta program. Yeah. So yeah. we couldn't think of it. We were trying to think of a name to call it, and I said, well, let's just call it what it is, Yeah, Delta. And, yeah. you know, Delta stands for change, Yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah. we kept it with what it was, and... Um, Man. So, Stacey, let me ask you this, right? Um, Being behind the walls of the Juvenile Detention Center, as well as being involved in the system overall, there are some ideologies that are associated with kids that are involved in our systems. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to some of the rewards of working very closely with young people? Because there's this idea that the kids that show up in these spaces are monsters, that they are predators. And I know from being behind that wall that that's not true, but um, I'm wondering if you can just kind of shine a light on what you have seen in terms of those stories about young people that are behind those walls and just the the human part of that. They are literally just kids. They are they're children. Um, they've made some poor decisions. Um, I tell you, I went on one unit one time, and I it, I'm gonna tell you when it really hit me. I went on a unit, and there's a young man who's in there for an armed robbery charge, right? That's a pretty serious serious charge. charge. 
And he's sitting there, in tr- I mean, just watching SpongeBob, mm. watching the cartoons. And it was another cartoon, I think, that he liked watching. And he, he says, Miss Stacy, can we just finish watching this episode? And I thought, really? Mm. This kid is out here, to, but they, they're just kids. Or two kids kind of getting into it over a, a, a cookie. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I find myself, you know, dealing with and addressing issues with them in there that children experience and go through. And I said, these are just kids. You know, there's some that come in and they, you know, you may not see them on the outside doing this, but they'll come in and, and, and be crying and bawling their eyes out, you know, because they've been separated from their parent. Yeah. You know? Um, it, it, it just, you, ha- you have to, once just being in there and experiencing and seeing this, these kids and what they're going through and, you know, I'm, I'm big on education. And so as I start looking at, you know, their test scores, cause we, we test them to see where they are when they first come in. And I mean, there was a large percentage of them coming in below grade level, I, I'll never forget this one young lady that came in that did not even really know how to spell her full last name or last name, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so she always just put her first name, and I said, "You need to put your last name." She didn't know how to spell her last name, mm-hmm. and I thought, "Oh my gosh, we we got work, we got work, we got to do," you know. And I said, "It's okay." And this was a young lady who was a mother, <clears throat> but. You know, I took time to help her to spell her last name. And, you know, you we meet them where they are yeah. and work with them on the things that they need to improve in. And, um, you know, we got to look past the charge and look at, you know, what is the need? What is the genuine need of these young people when they come in? And it 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 um it humbles you, you know, um, you know, it it's easy. It's easier to show empathy when you're when you're with them day to day and you hear their story and yeah. you hear more about them yeah um, so i want to play i want to play devil's advocate because okay. you just said something you look past right mm-hmm. and to pr- move into empathy how do you do that stacy when we know that some of these young people have victims right mm-hmm. how does a person who knows that in the community, um, may not have an opportunity to go behind those walls and and hear it from the perspective that you have just shared, but also how I have seen it as well, and still operate with that level of empathy, especially when we're talking about how we write about these kids, how we tell their stories in the news, but most importantly, their challenges in the community with the idea of maybe even having victims left behind. So can you speak a little bit about how does a, a person in the community move into that space as you just described? Because that's really powerful what you just said. You know, the first example that comes to mind, Cole, is um, uh, we had a young man that came to detention for murder. Mm-hmm. And he was 12 years old mm-hmm. and he stabbed and killed a nine-year-old. And so there was so much media attention and everybody wanted, there was so many, I shouldn't say everyone, but there were a lot of people that wanted to just throw the book at this kid 
and wanted him sent away and put in prison and, and, and done with. But this young man, once people began to start hearing his story and all that he went through, um, which is one of the reasons why I love this setting here and this avenue, yeah. this right here allows that, yeah. that space. But, you know, once we started, you know, the public started hearing, you know, a little bit about his background and his upbringing and um, people began to have a little more empathy, including the victims, mm. the family. And so as years went by, this kid was placed in a placement. And surprisingly, the person who visited him the most was the grandmother of the victim, the kid who passed, wow. passed away. It's wow. just a touching story. You know, she saw past that and saw this kid was hurt. He had some other underlying issues going on, trauma. There was a number of things this young man was experiencing. In fact, the kid wanted to die himself. And we dealt with a number of suicide attempts. But um, he went to placement, and it was the relationships that were built that helped save this young man's life. So I, I guess my only answer I could say is just building relationships with young people. You know, when I interviewed him, um, because he's done, he's, he's, he finished his time at his placement and he's returned to the community. And I had an opportunity to sit and talk with him. And, um, you know, and what I got from my interview with him was it was the relationships that he built, um, that there were people that came to visit him that worked in detention. There was a surveillance officer that not only visited him, but, he allowed him in his home to come home for home visits. And, um, you know, that's not something we traditionally do. Yeah. But like I said, we all begin to hear and unfold the story of this young man and realize that this is a, this is a good kid. This is a kid that just needed help yeah. and was crying for help. And um, so things turned around for him. And, uh, you know, he wound up back into the community and ultimately living with uh, uh, the surveillance officer who who worked with him. It was a very touching story. I had him come and talk to uh, my students uh, when I was teaching at Grand Valley. And um, he uh, he was able to tell his story. And he said to me, Miss Stacy, that's what I want to do. I want to be able to have an outlet. It, it helps me to be able to talk about it yeah. and um, and him not to get back into that dark space. So I'm going to challenge you guys to invite him in the future, and I know just how to reach out to him. But um, right. he, he, you know, just this was what he needed. And so him coming and talking to my students, I thought he was going to be a little fearful for him. No, he yeah. – and he knew exactly what to say, and it was just – it was just, that's the best way I can really explain it. Yeah. We really just have to build relationships with our, with these young people. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. I know the young man that you're, you're referring to, mm-hmm. um, and he's always wanted to do a podcast. So I look forward to him not only hearing mm-hmm. this, but 
hopefully I have an opportunity for him to, to yeah. be a part of this. So. Yeah. so I think something you just touched on are kind of misconceptions. Yeah. And Cole, you touched on it earlier about these really system-impacted youth. And what do people need to understand about kids in the juvenile justice system and the fact that they're going to grow up? How do we start helping the community better understand this? I think one of the answers would be we have to we have to be more proactive rather than reactive. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how are we setting an environment where we are investing in our kids rather than using the monies that we have to lock them up or send them away or place them in places? If we could just use some of those dollars and use it more to invest in them, what are their talents? What are some of the skills that they have that their interest is? How do we expose them to things that they've never even seen or imagined or tried? You know, um, when we begin to do that, you know, and invest in them, I, I guarantee you'll start to see more positives that come out of that. We have to expose them to things that um, they may not see or recognize that they may not have had and um, um, give them the opportunity to, you know, build on their, their, their interests and things that they do like, you know, and that they do know. When we start to do that, I think, you know, we, we would see some positive changes. Stacey, you just brought up something I think is really important, right? So um, back in 2022, um, I was involved in the Juvenile Justice Task Force for reform. So really mm -hmm. looking at how to reform the juvenile justice system. Mm -hmm. Currently on the Senate floor, we have a bill that's really associated with the child care fund mm -hmm. where they're looking to increase about 75 percent of that funding to really support um, diversifying programs that really can put funding to organizations right, right within the communities looking at um, diversion um, and pre-arrest, but really trying to find ways creatively to support um, supporting kids in our program. So when you talk about funding, um, does something like that make sense when we talk about this this idea of increasing funding to really support reaching kiddos? And I say kiddos a lot, but reaching our kids because that's what I've seen mm -hmm. um, before they get into the system. So does that, you know, when you, we think about funding and braiding dollars, what does that need to look like creatively for, for organizations and people like even us, the Delta Project, to really participate in helping kids? Absolutely. We need to, I think we need more dollars to provide more, whether it be after, after school programs for kids, whether it be um, more um, exposure of things that they've, like I said, they've never even tried. I remember taking our Delta group um, horseback riding. You know, they never even been on a horse. In fact, right. I'm going to be honest, it was my first time, too. I'm a city girl. I really don't do. That's more of like a thing that I think in the country. I just don't do that. But I tried it with them, and it was just awesome, an awesome experience. And so I think just exposing them to some new things, some um, uh, things that they may not have tried, um, introducing them to people in, in, in big spaces, big places, big spaces that that they may yeah. have yeah. not even imagined. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It creates positive things for them. Okay. They see if they see it being positive, 
they'll do more positive things, you know? Um, so yeah. I'm all about that. You know, I had a young man that was a great artist in the facility. And I said, we got to do something with that. And so we ended up using his, uh, uh, um, something that he drew to put on a shirt. And the shirt began to make money. And I said, well, let's make, let's buy some more shirts and you can start a business. And he thought, oh, you know, I can. Yeah. And that young man, I'm, I, that might be another one to have bring aboard. But I'm just saying, these yeah. they have to have those opportunities and someone to see something good in them yeah. and bring that out. Yeah. Well, our North Star for the Delta Project is how do I become something I don't see? And, yeah. I, and I think, Stacey, part of... Um, shifting from residential and into the program for the Delta Project was really centered around entering into the detention center and saying, hey, I'm in these classrooms working with these young people, and uh, I'm noticing that they're talking about not being able to see the kind of men that I'm seeing when I leave, right? And so you giving us the opportunity to come into the facility and really explore with them around what does it mean to become something you haven't seen you know, it has really been instrumental in our ability to be able to answer that question for so many of our young people that we serve. But one of the things I think is important that you've mentioned a couple times is family um, and parents. And so I'm really interested in understanding from you, why did you decide that you needed a parenting component to your treatment program? What was what was the nature of that for you? Well, ultimately, for things to change for a young person, the parent has to make changes too, you know. Um, if only the child changes, you know, they're going to come back and they're going to, what do kids do? They test. Yes. You know, you, you're you going to test your limits, you know. I mean, that's kind of natural, yeah. right? That's natural. We even as adults tend to do that sometimes. Yes. <laughs> and I bring that up because, you know, I said I drive down this one street all the time and I tend to speed just a little bit. But, you know, there's a cop that sits on the side of that street all the time now. And so I'm not going to test that. Um, yeah. You know, it, you learn that, okay, I got to make yeah. some changes. I yeah. should not be speeding. You know, and I, so I tell the young people that, you know, we even as adults sometimes make those same errors. But the key is, you know, really, um, you know, for parents, they've got to prepare and plan for their young person to come home. And some things with how they parent their their child may need to change, right? So, you know, we don't parent every kid exactly the same. No, we don't. You know, I have a daughter and a son, and I I don't parent my daughter like I parent my son. You know, they have different needs. And so um, you have to do, you have to parent different. And so, and that parenting changes, you know, now that Absolutely. they're college students, uh, my parenting changes a little bit. You know, I can't parent the way I used to parent yeah. when they were in seventh and eighth grade. You know, so, you know, and it's just an, an ongoing change, but we're all learning in that process. And so one of the things, you know, with the parent piece, you know, I I hope I, I um, was able to convince my parents to see is that I'm still learning too, you know. And I am not immune for something happening within my own family. And so, um, 
you know, in that parenting piece, parents have to do some things differently to prepare for that child coming home. So I really think, you know, we look at kids as at risk when in fact we should reframe that and understand that they're at potential. The risk is something that we're, we're putting into the, into the mix. You know, they see themselves as potential where they should, and we should help them understand that. But I think the community needs to understand the role that our kids play in the future of our society. If we've got young men going off to prison, um, they're going to return home someday, and they're likely going to return home and need more services. And they're going to have to find their way. They could become homeless. They could be in a situation where if we were just to look at this from dollars and cents, it's much more costly. If we're not getting upstream and helping kids become really the leaders in our community, that they have the potential. In talking about this, with your experience and all of the time you've spent trying to better understand our youth and the juvenile justice system, what is kind of your vision? I mean, do you have a vision for how things might be done differently? You've talked about it a bit, but say five years from now, what would you like to see in the juvenile justice system that we don't have? Um. I think the, the main thing is I would love to see more investment, um, us spending more dollars investing in our kids and um, spending those dollars right at the front, the forefront. When okay. they get involved with the system the very first time, um, you know, being able to tap into the family needs and dynamics right then versus waiting um, or for a kid to build up four or five charges before mm -hmm. we actually respond or, um, you know, but I think it's more important about what we do at that initial forefront um, to help them and to find out what are some of the dynamics or issues that may be going on with the family. Um, with some families, it's really need. There's things that's missing that the family needs. And so because of that, and, and then there's trauma, right? And so um, those are just a couple of things that, you know, families experience. And, you know, we wait until things build up before we respond. And so I think as a, uh, as a system, once we start doing more of that, um, being, like I said, proactive, we can we'll, we'll gradually see more changes in our young people. I saw a young man that held the door open for me walking into the door. I said, you know what? Thank you so much, young man. I really appreciate that. I saw that you were being nice and you, you know, by you opening up the door for me. And he looked at me like, you know, you take advantage of just little things like mm -hmm. that. I, that. Um, yeah. I gave a, a young man a, a ride. And this was a kid I didn't know. I gave him a ride home, but I had to stop to get gas and I went in to pay for the gas, and I came outside, and he was already outside ready to pump my gas for me. I said, thank you so much. You know what? I see so much potential in you. Yeah. You just doing something like that shows me it's in you. You are a kind person, and I know it's in you. And he looked at me like, <laughs> yes, yes. So when we begin to take advantage of little opportunities like that, 
you know, um, where we see a young person trying or making a conscious effort, you know, give them that extra encouragement. Those are, those are encouraging times that they'll never forget. They'll, they'll remember those moments, yeah. you know. Um, one thing I did do as a probation officer, I went to the homes. Mm-hmm. I always went to their home because I, I, I had to build a rapport with the entire family, not just the kid I'm working with. Relationship building with, with the entire yeah. family, those are ways that we have opportunities to make a difference with our kids. Um, so taking advantage of those opportunities because we all come into contact with young people. Absolutely. We do. So when we have contact with young people, use those few moments that we have to interact with them and encourage them, hear them. You would be amazed at what they know. They have so much potential in them, but the only way is for us to think it and pull it out of them. And they will appreciate that. They they look to us for that. You know, they look to us. We're responsible for them. They don't know. They really don't know. And so that's our role. Well, I think that that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, it's it's the type of impact that we don't often measure. Right. It's impact that happens. Right. Yes. You can't necessarily quantify it. Right. And you never know when you're going to plant a seed at a young young person that, hey, maybe five, ten years from now, people are like, I remember when Miss Stacy told me this. And then it becomes a playbook for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tool they can use to navigate their lives. And for us, it may be no big deal at all. Just might be something simple we pointed out. Yeah. But that can stick with them and make a big difference. You're not going to measure that. Right. But you're going to see the air. Right. And Joel, I think that's beautiful because I think also what you just said is that all of us have the opportunity to plant a seed, but we also all have within us the ability to have hope Mm -hmm. and so that we can share that hope and we can give that but we also have to feel confident enough in our roles in our ability within our communities to trust that we have something to give to young people and Mm -hmm. I think that's a a shift that I think is really important that all of us have something to give and to just remember that that's what this is really all about and I think Stacy you just really ironed it out this is really about relationships. Mm-hmm. It's really about connection. But most importantly, when kids act out, you don't move away from them. You move in. Mm-hmm. A real pleasure to have you here is kind of our first yeah, Stacey. person to interview. Yes. And, and Stacy, thank you so much for trusting me when I walked into the door and said, hey, I've got this idea and uh, I'm going to bring in a team of people and we're going to do something completely different than what we've ever done in the detention center. But thank you for allowing someone from the community to come in with a vision and a voice uh, and have an opportunity to expand that. Because of your saying yes, we now have this the Delta Project nonprofit organization with a podcast that really helps to elevate the stories of not only lived experience people from behind the walls, but people that are in the system doing the work as well. So thank you for all your contribution 
to the work and your um, continued efforts to help to impact the system and most importantly to impact our kids. Yeah. So thank you, Stacy. Yeah. You gonna give me our team? Yeah. No, no. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you guys. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah.